Amen. We're going to be finishing up. Uh, we've been talking about uh, discipleship, uh, being a disciple, uh, the posture of a disciple, uh, various things about discipleship, and we're going to finish that up today. Amen. And I believe that this is, I, I've personally talked about this before, but I believe it's relevant for us uh, in this moment as well uh, to be reminded of some things uh, that we need to be reminded of. So I want us to pray that the Lord would have his way in every class today that's taken place and that the Lord's uh, spirit and then his word would do its work today. Join with me in prayer. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for this privilege and opportunity we have to be in your presence, Lord. We don't want to take it lightly or for granted. And Lord, I pray that you would have your way today, Lord, in every Sunday school class that's taking place, that you would anoint every teacher to speak your word with boldness and confidence, Lord. I pray that you would anoint every ear to hear your voice. And Lord, I believe you and trust you that your word will do a work in my heart and life, and I give you praise and glory for it in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen. The, the, the lesson, big idea, we're going to be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 here, one verse in just a moment. But the big idea of this lesson is that to become mature disciples, that being the key phrase, not to be a disciple, but to become a mature disciple of Jesus Christ, one of the markers of that is to become a disciple maker, to become a disciple maker. So there are plenty of people that follow the Lord, but if I want to be considered mature, then I need to be a disciple maker. And our scripture we're going to read is just a short one, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 1. This is from the New King James, which is slightly different. It just says, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Barnabas had just settled down for the evening when he heard a knock at the door. He opened the door and was surprised to see a face he recognized. Barnabas had crossed paths with this man through the years. Barnabas was from the island of Crete, just off the coast of Tarsus, and both of them, being businessmen, had occasionally rubbed shoulders at the markets of that region. Perhaps this explained why when others rejected Saul in Jerusalem a few weeks prior, Saul came seeking Barnabas. Barnabas invited Saul to come in and told Saul he had heard about his amazing conversion and wanted to hear Saul's story. And this alone was a great encouragement to Saul because no one in Jerusalem seemed interested in his testimony. Wouldn't that be great? You get saved and no one wants to hear about it. That's what happened. He went to Jerusalem and everyone's like, nope, don't want to hear it. Okay. Glad God called me. Glad you thought I was worth saving for this. No. Barnabas then let, the, then let him know that he had also heard about his rejection in Jerusalem, but assured Saul that the sure hand of God was upon his life and his future was already planned by God. Saul was eager to share his conversion story and the turnaround that had happened to him while on his way to Damascus to imprison more Christians. He shared with Barnabas that when the light shined down from heaven, accompanied by a voice, he began to shake and tremble, and he knew his life was about to change, but he, he wasn't sure if it was for the better. He wasn't sure if it was for the better. When he asked the voice who it was, Saul knew he was in for a revelation. When the voice said, I am Jesus, a wave of awe swept over him as he realized Jesus was not a fraud, but rather Jehovah God manifested in the flesh. Barnabas rejoiced at Saul's conversion story. He was particularly impressed how God sent him into Damascus, not riding a horse, but blind and being led by the hand. Saul detailed for him his three days of darkness, fasting, prayer, 
Oh, he had a prayer and fasting revival. Look at that. Man, what a... That's great. Fasting, prayer, and brokenness before God. And he recounted how God had sent him a disciple by the name of Ananias, who when he first met him called him Brother Saul. Ananias then announced to Saul that God had sent him to pray for Saul to recover his sight, to baptize him, and that he would also be filled with the Holy Ghost. Barnabas, which means son of consolation, was actually a nickname given to him by the apostles. His given name was Joseph. He certainly lived up to the meaning of his nickname and his relationship with Saul. Early on in their relationship, Barnabas was the one who discipled Saul. He took him to the church in Antioch where they received Saul readily and recognized his calling, his anointing, his gifting. The Lord led them on their first missionary journey together when they saw the hand of God do amazing things. It was not long, however, before Barnabas began to feel a shift in Saul's ministry. Barnabas always knew Saul was special to God, but now his spiritual authority, revelation, and considerable skills were, were fully mature, being manifested in both private and public meetings. It was obvious to Barnabas that Saul's gifting was stronger than his own. Through circumstances that appeared unfortunate, but that God actually used for his glory, the men separated and became two missionary teams, opening up even more nations, regions, and cities with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So where would this future writer of over half of the New Testament be without his early influencer, the son of consolation? Would we have ever heard the name Saul, who we know as Paul now, without this selfless disciple maker who stuck his neck out and risked his own good reputation at a time when Saul needed it most? To be sure, there were key, other key players in Saul's conversion story like Stephen. And Saul witnessed his testimony and his martyrdom, and that greatly affected him. Ananias, who, who prayed for him and, and first witnessed to him. And then an unnamed disciple at Damascus who let Saul down over the wall in a basket when he was about to be killed. And prophets and teachers in Antioch who laid their hands on him. But Barnabas was the early stabilizing force in Saul's life who saw something special in Saul extended himself and celebrated Saul's great exploits for God. He saw something, he extended himself, and he celebrated something. Discipleship is very important. If I want to be a mature disciple, I've got to learn that I have to start making disciples. And Paul made a bold offer to the Corinthian church in his letter to them. We find that we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 1, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ and in this he invited them to imitate him because he was imitating Jesus Christ he was imitating Jesus Christ you see the church at Corinth I know sometimes we're like man it's bad but let me just tell you the church of Corinth there's if you look at the history of it, it I don't know how it's called the church at Corinth it looks like I don't know what it looks like in the church at Corinth, if you read what Paul addresses, the reason that Paul addresses the issues that he does is because that's the problems at Corinth, okay? There's a guy that is, is uh, in, in, in a not good relationship with his stepmother, his stepmother. They're confused. They're divided. They misuse the gifts of the Spirit. That's why we have all of that talk about the gifts of the Spirit and the body, and we're all part of one body. You know why he wrote that? Because they didn't think they were. They didn't like each other. 
This was the church that we're, we're actually today we're going to be taking communion later in service and we may read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 where God talks, where Paul talks to them about their communion time. Pretty much communion was like Labor Day. It was a potluck. It was no little thing like this. It was potluck time. And then the richest people got to go first. Okay? How does that sound to you? If you're rich, it sounds... No, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. That communion is based on how wealthy you are. That's church. And, and, and they're misusing this. They, they are, they are not, they're not discerning the Lord's body when receiving communion. And in fact, Paul says, this is why some of you are sick and have even died. is because you are not just, you know, your heart's not... You are completely misusing the, the Lord's Supper, communion. There's all of this crazy stuff going on in Corinth. Like I said, at times I wonder how it's even called a church, but then it gives me hope as well <laughs> that God has, he, he, he reaches pretty far out. So their penalty to, for failure, they, they weren't following a good example. We're not sure who their example was or where they were getting uh, the idea that they could do all of these things. But uh, Paul says, you know what? The way that you are going is not right. In fact, here's what you should do. You should follow me. Not all of these other ways that you're going and you think this is all right. And this is, I, I, and like I said, I've, I've taught on this before. And, and, and this verse is kind of a problem when we begin to think about it. Because we, when we first hear that, it really it, it sounds like pride or arrogance or, or flattery on Paul's part. But he's telling them that whatever or whoever you are imitating is not working. You are not heading down a good path. You need a proper model of truth, balance, attitude, and godly posture to example yourself after. And Paul said, I'll be the guy that you can follow. We know that he was qualified and experienced, that if you were going to have someone, then, then, then Paul was a good example. He was their founding pastor, so he was an obvious choice. But still, it, it leaves us with a little bit of a question, at least in my mind that he says this. Paul qualified his invitation to follow him though. This is the first thing to realize. That Paul qualified his invitation to follow him. This was not a blanket invitation to say, you know what, whatever I do, you do. Paul did not say, uh, if, if, you know, every single thing that I do, no, there's a qualification on it. And the Corinthians were told to follow him only if he was following Jesus Christ. There's a qualification. He says, follow me as I follow Jesus. And implied in this is that if I ever stop following Jesus, then you don't have to follow me. That they were released from this. So it's important for us to understand when we start talking about discipleship and when we look at what Paul says and how he deals with discipleship, and this is maybe one reason that we struggle with it, is that Paul in this simple statement of imitate me just as I imitate Christ, somehow in that statement gives accountability to the church to hold him accountable. Now, a lot of us don't like accountability. A lot of us don't like our... our <laughs> It's, it's far easier to just be able to say stuff and not have to back it up, right? We don't like accountability. But in this statement, Paul gives the church, he says, follow me as I follow Christ. And so he has to make sure that he is following Christ so that they will follow him. There's this idea of accountability. But we must not miss Paul's caution to follow him only if he was following Christ. Paul gave this caution to follow him. You know, and this, this becomes a problem. Sometimes, uh, as Christians, and not just as Christians, but as human beings, but speaking as a church here, as Christians, we 
become so focused and intent upon human leadership. We become so focused on it that we lose our vision of Christ. Let me just remind you real quick, if you look closely at any human leader, guess what you're going to find? Human. It doesn't matter how good they are. In fact, we can look at the life of Paul, and, and, and it was mentioned the split with Barnabas. Uh, Paul, the greatest missionary that was, who wrote over half the New Testament, I firmly believe that in that separation, although God did use it because all things work together for the good, I do think that was I don't know if it was a sin, but it was something wrong in Paul's life because the language implied is that it wasn't just that they disagreed about who should go and where they should go, but that the words got personal. So Paul started saying, well, did you know Timothy, or did you know Barnabas? You're pretty ugly too. You have a big nose, and you stink. It got personal. It wasn't just about who should go. So I I think, that's a joke, but it, it does say that the words became sharp. There was a very strong disagreement between them. But if you look at any human leader long enough, you are going to find humanity. You will find that there. If you don't, then there's a late night show that you can call into that talks about things that are not of this world. And you know what? When you find humanity in people that you lift up, you are, you are setting yourself up when you, when you look at someone and, and you think, man, that's just perfection, you are setting yourself up for disappointment. I, I, I'm not saying this to pull people down, but I mean, I met, it's in the notes here, but I mentioned it last week when I was preaching, uh, Hebrews chapter 11, these heroes of the faith. I mentioned Abraham, who, who is, uh, Hebrews 11 would give us the idea that God spoke to him and he just started out on his journey. No, the first thing he did after God spoke was disobey. The very first thing. God said, I want you to leave everything behind. And Abraham said, yes, Lord. And as soon as he got done praying, he went and found Lot. And said, I, well, you want to come with me? Which was in direct violation of what God said. We, we find Moses. We mentioned him. And in Hebrews 11, it says, by faith, Moses fled the courts of Pharaoh. Making it sound like he could not handle that Egyptian paganism anymore. And so, by faith, he left. No, he killed a guy and buried the body and they found out, so he fled for his life. Faith. All the people that are mentioned, Noah, he he got drunk. David committed adultery. Jacob was a deceiver. Gideon was fearful. Samson, a womanizer. Sarah laughed at the promises of God. (laughs) Rahab was a harlot. All these are mentioned in the hall of faith. If you look closely at any humanity, you are going to find something wrong. (laughs) I think this is why very quickly, in chapter 12, Hebrews chapter 12, what does it start out with? Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Let me tell you, if you are looking to any person to be the author and finisher of your faith, you are going to be disappointed and you are going to be sadly mistaken. There is only one that I should be looking to, and that is Jesus Christ. And so this is important, though, because Paul gives this caution, as long as I am following Jesus, you can follow me. But if you, if you find some part of my life, it doesn't mean that if I just start sinning, but because I'm human, there may be areas of my life where you realize you're not quite following Jesus there. Let me tell you, this, this is our culture today. 
And I think uh, culture very often bleeds over into, into the church. I, I know we don't think it does. But you know, our society is one that has, has developed the art of criticism to a level that we have never been to before. Now, for people that like to be critical, this is the time then that I should be flourishing, but unfortunately, that's not really a great virtue in Christianity, so I have to temper that criticism. And, but, I mean, how, it doesn't, it, it, someone can, can, can rise to the top for whatever reason, and it takes five minutes to find something wrong with that person. You know why? Because everyone's got something wrong. It doesn't matter if it happened 30 years ago or if it happened two weeks ago. There is nobody that is exempt. <laughs> and for some reason, we think that it, people used to be exempt. <laughs> you start watching stuff about what people really did back in the day, they were no better. You just didn't know about it. <laughs> All those people that we held in such high esteem, let me just tell you, they weren't that good. You know why? Because they were human. They had just as many mistakes. We just didn't know about it. We didn't have social media. Um, we, we, didn't have, we didn't have 20 years of Facebook pictures to look back on and comments to see what you said when you were 16 and now that derails your entire career now. I, I still say stuff that derail, derailing myself. No, okay. But we have developed this, this idea that if there's this one thing wrong, then we get to tear all of you apart. And you know what? That begins to creep into the church. Well, who do they think they are? They did. Yeah, they probably did. And you probably did too. So why should anyone listen to you? Because we all have things. But we cannot allow, just because somebody is human in one area does not mean that we cannot follow them as they follow Christ in another area, making sure that my eyes are fixed on Christ. There's too many people that are not in church anymore today because of what somebody did in their life. And the problem was is their gaze was fixed on a person and not on Jesus Christ. Because scripture is very clear that he's the one who will never fail, that will never forsake, that will never leave. And so my trust is in him. Does that mean I can't be disappointed when I hear something about somebody and something that happened in their life? Yes, I can be disappointed about that, but my eyes need to be fixed upon Jesus Christ. The issue is, though, is that while my eyes are fixed on Jesus, it is a biblical precedent that there are uh, human examples that are in my life. When we begin to think, well, I'll just fix my eyes on Jesus because nobody's good and I can't find anyone that, that completely fits the mold of what I want to look to, we no longer have anyone in our life and that's a dangerous place to be because you start doing your own thing. And let me just tell you right now, in case you didn't know, your own thing's probably not right all the time either. Paul was not demanding blind obedience to himself. He was simply offering his model as a lens through which to gaze upon the goal of all Christianity becoming like Jesus. He did not say become Paul because that was not the goal. He did not tell them that you have to blindly obey without question, without thought, because that's ridiculous. That's why. Because God created you with free will. So why would you allow man to take that free will from you and blindly follow when God did not create you to do that? Anyway, just in case you're deciding to join a cult today after church... Just remember that. God himself instituted this pattern when he created Adam. 
Genesis 1.27 says God created Adam in his own image. How is it possible for God to create Adam in his own image when he had no image yet? Paul called Jesus the last Adam, which gives us insight into how God formed the first Adam in his own image. John 1.1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that term word is logos, which means the plan, the mind, or envisaging of God. My bifocals, my trifocals went crazy. Revelation 13.8 refers to Jesus as the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So before there was ever a sinner, there was a savior in the mind and plan of God. That's how man was created in God's image. We understand that God is still making us into the image of Jesus Christ through the transforming power of our obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ. God is still making us, how many of you know that's true? Into his image through the transforming power of our obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our obedience is key to us being transformed into his image. The new birth is a fixed thing. You must be born again. I cannot keep being reborn. I do not need to be baptized, keep being rebaptized every time I sin. The new birth is a fixed point. This is when I was baptized. This is when I repented of my sins for the first time. This is when I received the Holy Ghost for the first time. But this tells us that the gospel, although the new birth is a fixed point, the gospel continues to work in my life. That the gospel is not a one-time thing. It's not a message that you hear once and then it's done. No, while those experiences are one-time things, the gospel and my obedience to it continues to work and it's my obedience to it which allows me to continue to grow. It's the ongoing work of the cross. It's the ongoing work of the blood, of the name, of the word, and of God's grace in my life. All that being said, with all that working in our life, it still is beneficial for us to have an example to follow, someone to be accountable to, and this is the power of making disciples. That's why we should be a disciple. What about making them? There's over 40 persons named in Scripture who are in the downline of the Apostle Paul's spiritual family tree. Uh, there's, there's people that, that Paul was writing to constantly, that he was uh, uh, taking them with him on missionary journeys, he was praying for them. In fact, we, we find that Paul uh, never did ministry alone, that, he, very, uh, that he, he had someone with him at all times or was writing to someone or had somebody in the works that he was ministering to. He, he always had that person that he was speaking into their life, developing uh, their philosophy of changing the world one person of, at a time. We find that his son in the gospel was Timothy. He calls him that. And Paul was so confident in his disciple Timothy and in the impact he had in his life, he wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 4.17, For this reason I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. Paul says that I'm going to send you Timothy and he's going to remind you of me. Now, there's two ways, and that the first way is that his message is the same as mine, that we are of the same message. So because we speak the same thing, and he's saying the same thing as me, then you can trust him, but also that when he comes, he might remind you a little bit of me, because I have put myself in him. Now, uh, this, this is not about, I saw some, this is not about making clones of ourselves, 
This is not about just duplicating ourselves. yet when we spend time with people, then you begin to uh, 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 have a piece of that person. You begin to gain a piece of that person. Um, well, I was going to talk about people and their pets, but we probably won't do that. But if you, if you notice, if you're married, that, that after a while you begin to pick up on each other's mannerisms. It's not that you act exactly the same, but there's similarities that you did not have before. There's certain ways that you act that you've picked up from your spouse. And so we find that there's this idea of putting some of ourselves into somebody else. When we make disciples, we are giving someone less mature in Christ an invitation to imitate or to be like us. Now, I would venture to say that most of us do not have an issue with being a disciple. Even though we may not consider ourselves a good disciple, we don't have an issue with the idea of being a disciple. This is where the real issue comes in, is making disciples. But when we make disciples, we are giving someone less mature in Christ an invitation to imitate or be like us. That's the problem. How many of us honestly can take the words of Paul, which, I mean, if we believe Scripture, then this is true, right? How many of us could take these words of Paul and say these with confidence to somebody, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ? You see, that's the problem. If discipleship is a biblical concept, then it's important that I understand that it's important for me to do. This transformation, we understand, cannot happen by us alone. God does what he does through his grace, through his mercy, in that person and in us. As I continue to let grace work in me, then I can begin to see this. As disciples, we provide the modeling and hands-on discipling that Jesus commanded us. Someone, someone read for me this morning. Matthew chapter 28. Someone find that if there's a Bible in the place. Matthew chapter 28, read verses 18 through 20. But I'll, I'll get to you in just a minute here. Anyone can find it. But God does what he can do in that person. We understand that, there's, that, that it's not, I'm going to form and craft this person. No, it's a cooperation between God and myself, just as salvation is. I, I, I still don't know anyone that has, God has levitated into the baptistry. Every person I've seen has physically walked up of their own accord. Why? Because I play a part in it. I've never, uh, I've never seen God fill a baptistry either, or clean it, just so you know. Anyway, those are things we have to do. <laughs> Someone read Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 through 20. All right, that's some powerful words there. Some of Jesus' last words to his disciples, we know it is the Great Commission. How many of you would be fully confident in me if I got up here today and I taught to you that baptism is no longer necessary? How many of you would feel comfortable hearing that? How many of you would agree with that? You don't have to raise your hand, maybe. How many of you would feel, well, that's not right? Why, why would that be wrong? Because it's in the Word. 
It's plain and simple that baptism is in the Word. In fact, you can go throughout most of Christianity, and few people will disagree. They may disagree about how or the process of baptism, but most people would agree that baptism is necessary because the Word very clearly states it. In fact, that verse that we read very clearly states it. So for me to omit baptism from the Word, I would have to remove that part from the Great Commission that says to baptize. And we feel that baptism is important, right? Why is anything else in there less important? Why is baptism the one thing I can pull out of the Great Commission and say, we ain't giving up on that? We're going to do that till the Lord comes. But discipleship, I guess if I get around to it, that's no different. How is that? Let me, I won't say it. I'll ask you. How is that any different from pulling baptism out? If I say discipleship's not really that important, how can I not then pull out baptism? Let me tell you this. If I, if I want to be a mature Christian, and if any way I consider myself a mature Christian, or have lived for the Lord at any amount of time, and I am not making a disciple, how is that any different than saying I don't believe in baptism anymore? Now see, when we put it that way, well, when you put it that way, when you bring the Bible into it, sorry, I apologize for that. But for some reason, we feel like, oh, we can't omit this, but in the, in the very same sentence, a few words away, we can omit the other thing. Or at least not omit it. We know it's there, but we don't feel it's near as important. Jesus puts it in the same thing. He says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go. I want you to baptize. I want you to make disciples. Who are we to say any of those is any less important or put any less importance in our life on that? If I believe I have to be baptized, then I have to believe I have to make a disciple. (laughs) So here's the problem, because that's what Paul says. I want you to be my disciples. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. I don't have any problem saying you should be baptized in the name of Jesus, and you should be immersed because Scripture says it, and this is what you should do. But I can't say, follow me as I follow Christ. That's biblical. Now, whether I I go up to the person and say to that person, follow me as I follow Christ, maybe you don't have to use that verbiage, but at least if you are not exemplifying that in somebody's life. We'll throw this out. why, why Why would you be reluctant to say that to somebody? There's a good reason. Because you're not following Christ. Accountability, it makes you follow Christ feel unworthy, fear of rejection, fear of failure, the pressure of it, because I know I've told that person to watch me. We know people are watching us. Yeah, I mean, we all get that. People are watching us. But when we've told someone to watch us, that's a little bit different because they're going to watch you and do what you do. When you just are like, well, I, I assume there's someone back there watching me. Maybe they'll pick up something. That's a little bit different. But when I know they're watching me, that's different. All of these things, fear, pressure, accountability, the, the not following Christ, don't feel like we're worthy. See, a lot of these things come down to we are still looking at ourselves. This, this is why I have to get back to that idea that the gospel is not a one-time thing. It is a continual work in my life. Because for me to say to somebody, 
follow me as I follow Christ. You know what? I need a whole lot more of that gospel grace working in me and his mercy working in me than I did even in that first moment. I cannot leave those things because if I want to be a disciple maker, the gospel has to have an everyday effect in my life. What time is it? Time to go. But see, the problem is I still have confidence in myself. I feel like I'm unworthy. I feel the pressure of that. I feel fear of failure, whatever the fears may be. And I understand, get this, when I, and this is hard, but when I feel unworthiness, when I feel fear, when I feel all of those things, now I understand that when I walk into the presence of God, there is this idea that I am, I am unworthy, but scripture is very clear that I cannot stay in a feeling in a state of unworthiness because of his blood and because of what he has done. So Paul, when he says these words, it is stated in the confidence of what God is doing in him. Maybe the issue is, is we are not confident of what he is doing in us. That means I'm doubting his grace, his mercy, that he is good enough, strong enough, has covered enough in my life to allow me to do something. You see, really, when I can't say that to somebody else, it begins to place doubt in my mind about what God's done for me. Because he has made me worthy. Who here is worthy to enter into his presence? Nobody. But he has made us worthy to enter into his presence. (laughs) Scripture says sometimes that we frustrate the grace of God. I wonder how many times a day I frustrate the grace of God. And the grace of God saying, yes, you don't deserve it, but I've given you what you don't deserve. Yes, you don't deserve to lead anybody because of your past, because of who you are, because you're human, you're still struggling, but my grace is enough. My grace is sufficient. You see, I I, I still have too much trust and too much riding on myself. And and I I, I hate to um, call it what it is, but when it's all about myself, that's really just pride. Let me just say this, maybe I'm too proud to have a disciple. That sounds a little counterintuitive. Maybe all I can think about is myself, so I can't lead someone else. All I can think about is how bad I am, how wrong I am. But Jesus called us to go and make disciples. And he invites, this was to everybody. This was not to certain people. He said we are to live life intentionally, turn sinners into friends, and friends into disciples. If we are disciples of Jesus Christ, then by definition, we make disciples. That is the definition of being a disciple. That is part of the process. If I am not making disciples, I have stalled in the process of being a disciple. I am stuck in one spot. One question will answer whether I am a true disciple or not. If I'm continuing in my progress of being a disciple, if I can answer this question, who is my disciple? I mean, just to put it bluntly, who is my disciple? And to make it even more clear, perhaps the person wouldn't say it if you would say, uh, are you being discipled by so-and-so? But maybe if you would explain what that is, who would say, yes, they are discipling me? Because I could be like, well, you know, I kind of do good things in front of that person and I'm kind of nice sometimes with them and so yeah that's my disciple I don't think Timothy was unclear that he was a disciple of Paul I don't think he was very I think I think he was very clear that he was being discipled by somebody discipleship is not this uh ambiguous thing 
where, you know what, I'm discipling Brother Greg, but he don't know it. <laughs> that, that's, not how, that's not discipleship. That's not discipleship. He has to know for it to work. So let me, t- let me ask you, that person that you say you're discipling, do they know they're being discipled? Again, it may not be in those terms, but do they know that they're kind of following you? That you're leading them? You see, I don't like this stuff because it starts to get a little convicting and that makes me a little uncomfortable. But see, the difference between condemnation and conviction is condemnation, there's no out. Conviction, there's an out. You know what the out is? Is make a disciple. <laughs> Perhaps the 12 didn't understand everything they were signing up for at the moment that Jesus said, follow me. I guarantee you they didn't. When this dude walked by and said, follow me, and they left it, they did not have a clue what was about to happen over the next three years. Maybe their idea was that they would have a front row seat to something happening that would just be this great thing. However, they understood that they, were more, they would have to be more involved in this than what they probably even realized when Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these will he do because I go to my Father. I like the greater part. That's wonderful. But the first thing he says is you're going to have to do what I do. Before I can do greater, i got to do what he did. <laughs> Let me just tell you, Jesus could have done it anyway. Jesus could have come to this earth, he could have been born, he could have been a carpenter, the best carpenter we've ever seen, and we could have woodworkings that were left from him, and then one day he wakes up and is like, I'm going to the cross today. He could have asked some buddies to crucify him. Well, the, 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 the requirements... The requirements were not that, I mean, there's prophecies, so we get that there was prophecies, but the requirements were for a sacrifice. It wasn't that he had to be beaten. It wasn't that he had to do miracles. It wasn't that he had to have a triumphal entry. It was that his blood be shed and it be sinless. That was the requirements for our salvation. That was it. So Jesus could have hid away in in anonymity, almost got really tongue-tied there. He could have lived up in a mountain somewhere and then one day walked out of the hills and said, today I'm going to be crucified, and the work would have been enough if he would have been sinless. But he didn't. What did he do? He spent three years doing something. He spent three years making disciples. And he said, what I did, you need to do as well. He, he could have done it any single way, but he decided that I am going, my work will not be finished. My work will not be finished until I reproduce who I am in someone else. Our job is not just to lead people to the finished work of the cross. That doesn't mean we don't, but that's not it only. There is another work yet to finish. Our work is not completely finished until we also make disciples. 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 5.19 God who is in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Reconciliation is about the cross. It's about reconciling man to God. But it also has the idea of reconciliation with relationships as well. That we are reconciled to the body of Christ also. You and I know, you and I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that when we repented, that we were baptized, when we were filled with the Holy Ghost, that was not the end of it. That was only the beginning. Let me tell you this, it's not true for you, it's true for everybody else too. So who's going to help them continue? How does does someone coming to this altar, repenting, being baptized, and filled with the Holy Ghost, and I know that's just the start, how does that affect me? What role do I have to play in that person's life? 
Because I know, and I can go up and tell them, man, it's great now, but you, man, you still got hardships and trials, and it's not all going to be easy because the rain falls on the just and the unjust, and bad things are going to come your way. And that's all true. So what am I going to do? What am I going to do to help that person? When Jesus said, follow me, I'm talking fast because I'm hurrying. He was inviting his disciples to be with him, act like him, think like him, talk like him, do what he did. And, and perhaps we've hit the nail on the head. I can't invite someone because I don't want anyone else to act like me, think like me, talk like me, do what I do. There's an accountability. Follow me as I follow Christ. Perhaps the reason I have trouble with discipleship is because I know I'm not really the disciple I need to be. In, in Acts 4.13, the tormentors of Peter and John, they saw the boldness of Peter and John. They perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men. Wouldn't, that, wouldn't you like that to be the thing? Hmm, we heard them talk for a moment, and we knew they were uneducated and untrained. <laughs> and they marveled, though. They realized they'd been with Jesus. They realized something. They had been with Jesus. There was an indelible mark left upon them. That's because they thought like he thought. They talked like him. They were doing what he did. And you see, the, 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 the Pharisees and the rulers thought they had done away with Jesus once and for all. But now, all of a sudden, here were two more just like him. You see, the call to discipleship is the call to imitation. Who's imitating you today? Let me just say that raising kids, that's a form of discipleship. It is. I, I'm not going to minimize that whatsoever. That, that raising children, that's, that, man, dear Lord, I've said stuff and then I hear it come back in my own ears, I'm like, oh my goodness, better say that quieter, <laughs> I'm not going to stop saying it, just say it quieter, but the call to discipleship is a call to imitation, and every single one of us is called to imitation, and that means relationship. Back in the, in, in the ancient days, in the Greeks and different things, there, and, and even in the Jewish culture, the way that, the, that it was formed in Greek philosophers and different things, they would have a philosophy, they'd come up with something, and then people would come to gain the knowledge, and they would join with that person to gain their knowledge and to further the knowledge. That's how the ancient ways of discipleship worked. That's not what we are called to do. We are not called just to give people knowledge, because Jesus came... And when Jesus came, he did not give any knowledge first. He did not say, I'm going to wow you with this so that you'll want to follow me. He simply walked up to people and said, follow me. He did not say, here, follow this. I'm going to give you a new way of life. I'm going to do all these things. Just follow me. And Jesus flipped the entire idea, ancient idea of discipleship and what it meant. And that discipleship is not just about gaining knowledge, but it is about relationship. And the person is paramount not just the knowledge. Paul tells us to follow him as he follows Jesus. It's about following Jesus, and it's about people following us, which means relationship. Who am I leading in a relationship? There's a time for teaching, and there's a time for discipling, and God calls us to both. Let me just tell you that what I'm doing right now is not discipleship. It's teaching. Discipleship does not happen over a pulpit. Does not. Let me see how much time I got to get myself in trouble. Lord, save me. 
You ever wonder when people say, you know, maybe you're not having revival because you're not ready for it. You got to be ready for it. Really what that means is, are you ready to disciple? Is what that means. Because then they say, what if the Lord sent 400 people in here, what would you do? Well, we would preach to them all that stuff over the pulpit. It's not discipleship. If God called you to discipleship, that means if that's what that is, then everybody has to get up here and stand behind a podium if that's what discipleship is. Let me, oh, I'm trying to decide if I should lie or be honest. I'll just be honest. I don't, I don't, I don't see Amira here. Is she here? Yeah, she's right back there. Let me tell you about the experience I had with Amira. She's, she's little back there. She's being held. She's a great little baby. I was in this room in a meeting, and Sister Elizabeth was in there, and my wife was holding Amira, and I thought, well, I'll hold Amira. This will be wonderful. Just hold the baby. And, and then something happened. I can't remember what it was, but I had to give something, whatever, and I set Amira on the ground. And you know what she did? Boom. Right on her head in the middle of the meeting. I was like, She's just a baby. Here I am, I've held her, dropped her. I mean, the rest of her life will be blamed on me dropping her in a meeting. You know what I did immediately? I got furious at Amira. I was furious at her. Why did you do that? Everyone else in this meeting can sit up. What is your deal? And then I got mad at Curtis and Elizabeth. You've got a baby that can't sit up? What are you guys doing? <laughs> I did feel really bad, and I was like, you know, you know what I thought in my head? I was like, you idiot. You idiot. Like, it didn't even cross my mind that this little baby can't sit up. I was just like, just set her down. Set, I mean, I've got, <laughs> I wish my kids would just sit. No. <laughs> I was upset at myself because she was at a stage that she had not learned. She needed taught that. It would be absolutely unreasonable for me to be upset at Amira. Absolutely. There would be nobody in here that would agree with me being upset at Amira because she couldn't sit up. <sighs> to be upset at a baby for doing something they don't know any different or not being able to do something that they've never been taught is absolutely unreasonable. What Amira needs is for someone from this pulpit to tell her that she needs to sit up. Amira, sit up. She's not, she's not even looking my way. That will take care of it. Well, if they would just preach whatever. Now, it is countless. I don't know how many times of setting them there and catching them before they fall. When they walk, it's not like, okay, walk. No. I've got to be ready for the revival. And let me just say, he who is faithful over little things, let me just say, right now, God is doing something in our midst. And I want him to do more, but perhaps what he is waiting on is to see if I can disciple what he has brought here. Because if I can't dis disciple the few that he's brought, he will not make us ruler over many. And we have ba babies 
that are coming to church, and it is unreasonable for me to expect them to be able to sit up when they've never been told, and I know that you can't do it naturally. And it's going to take work, and it's going to take effort, and that does not fall to this right here. That falls to us being disciples and making disciples of people. That means it's going to take time, it's going to take energy, it's going to take relationship, it's going to take effort on my part. And I have to make sure that I am at the point while I know that I am not perfect whatsoever. And Paul does not say, I am perfect, so follow me. He says, imitate me as I also imitate Christ. The first thing I must do is I must be confident in what Christ wants to do through me. I've got to be able to stand sure and that he has saved me, that he has called me for a purpose, and that he is working in me. And then I need to find somebody to disciple. Everyone can find someone that's worse than you. That's real easy, right? <laughs> but I tell you what, there, I do not want it to happen here. There have been too many revivals stopped, not because of God, but because a church could not handle infants. I don't like working in the daycare. Don't want to work in the daycare. It stinks. Please come to the daycare. I got to close. Let's all stand as I give this great closing. Please walk through the daycare one day, through the baby room and the two-year-old room when they're also serving broccoli that day. That's, that's awful. It's awful. And you know what? Spiritually, there's going to be moments when I walk in and there's going to be a smell. There's going to be people I thought should be sitting up, bonking their heads. There should be people I thought were walking, just tripping up and tripping up. And I can stand back and say, well, man, they've been in church long enough. They all know, well, this and that. What would you say to that parent? What would you say to the parent that stood there as their kid walks? Well, I told them how to walk. I showed them how to walk. They heard how to walk. I gave them a book how to walk, and they still can't walk. Ignorant fools. You'd have a problem with the parent, not the child. I think I've said it enough. I want, us to, I want us to pray that the Lord would help us, not just to be disciples, but God, this is for right now, God is calling us to make disciples. And God has put people that need it in our midst. We don't even have to go look for it right now. They are here. We have every opportunity if we are willing to step forward in his grace and in the gospel that he has given to us and make disciples. Lord Jesus, we come before you. Thankful, Lord, for what you have done in our lives. Lord, we stand before you, not worthy of what you have done, but you have made us worthy. You have called us. You have given us purpose. Lord, you have brought us into this marvelous life. And Lord, you have called us to do something with what you have given us. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to get past our own inhibitions, our own things, our own hang-ups. We all have them, and Lord, to begin to work, to begin to help, to begin to do something in somebody else's life that you have called us to. Lord, I believe you and trust you, God, that you are bringing revival, that we are in revival, that you are going to continue, and we are going to be good stewards of what you bring our way. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I apologize for going longer than I should. You are dismissed for a few moments, and we will begin our main service here.